Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 1 through 30. Uh, this is the story of the woman at the well and how Jesus meets her and uh, engages her in a conversation about what will actually quench her thirst. And we read this. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. And he had to go through Samaria, coming to a town called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, "'Will you give me a drink?' His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. And the man you uh, now have is not your husband. What, uh, not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place uh, where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in, uh, in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. I think that's a very funny interaction. One day the Messiah will come. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why you were talking with her? Then leaving her water jar behind, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And all the people came out of the town and made their way toward him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
This Sunday, we start a new sermon series based on the recently approved vision frame. Uh, you have a document in your bulletin that outlines what that is. Now, this past year, your session authorized a small group of people to move through a season of discernment on behalf of the congregation. Now, we did this because while God provides universal goals for all churches, all churches and believers... With the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and the Great Commandment in Matthew 22, how each church fulfills that mission looks different. How our church fulfills that mission looks different than a church in downtown New York or even the Atlanta suburbs. They all look uniquely, uh, they are all unique. Through their work, this group defined a new mission statement. They elevated Values that have always been a part of our church. They determined a strategy to fulfill that mission, and they discovered ways to measure spiritual growth. Now, our team in our session hopes that this framework becomes so familiar that when you talk about your faith, people in our community, in downtown Jasper or Bent Tree or Big Canoe, will recognize that you are a part of our church and that we love Jesus. This morning, we're looking at how uh, we're looking at our new mission statement through the story of Jesus meeting the woman at the well and how he brings the rebellious children of God to drink waters of eternal life. Now, the details John uses to describe this midday encounter frames both the spiritual position of the woman, but also the extraordinary grace found in the invitation of Jesus to drink from water that will quench her thirst forever. Living in Samaria, this nameless woman was automatically an outcast among Jewish people due to her ancestry. Descended from Jews who were left behind by the conquering armies of Babylon and Persia way back in the Old Testament during the time of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Samaritans assimilated into the surrounding culture and lost much of what made them distinctly Jewish. So their Israelites' uh, cousins, this was pretty much a betrayal because they started to worship other gods. They were different than the Jews who returned. And this betrayal could hardly be forgiven. After several centuries, their mutual animosity had grown fairly extreme. So when Jesus meets this Samaritan woman, she's surprised that a Jewish man is even talking to her at all. This is one of the reasons that the parable of the good Samaritan was so shocking when Jesus told it. A Samaritan would never help a Jew who was beaten up on the side of the road. Beyond this stigma, however, this woman was also an outcast inside her own community, in her own town. John recounts that she approached the well about the sixth hour, which is around noon, in the heat of the day, which was unusual. But it was the perfect time to avoid other women in town who typically came in the morning or the evening when it was cooler. We learn the reason for these odd hours is that she has a reputation. She's had five husbands and currently resides with a man who is not her husband. Now, the text uh, sort of tells us that this is uh, because she is maybe a little bit promiscuous. 
Uh, one commentary said, although it's not explicit, she could have murdered five husbands, and then <laughs> this is her latest. We can only imagine the extent of the broken relationships and reputation left in the wake of that kind of a life. It was a life that was filled with decisions she likely regretted. But what might be easier for us to grasp is the spirit she harbored within as she was searching for something more. Whatever struggle raged within her, every feeling, every moment, every decision of her life aligned to draw her to the well on that day for a divine appointment with the Messiah that even the Samaritans had been waiting for. Until this moment, her life had been a series of bad decisions that only led to social estrangement and personal frustration. And it is symbolized by her solitary journey in the hot, dusty misery of the noonday sun. Her conversation with Jesus reveals she knew the differences between the religions of the Samaritans and the Jews, but she clearly had no familiarity with grace, no understanding of God's love, no understanding of mercy. None of the men in her life had loved her soul. She had never known peace. Pulling water from the well would only satisfy her physical thirst for a time, but it would never satisfy her soul. On one level, we probably know how she felt more clearly than we might want to admit. Because that is life apart from Jesus. Endless striving and searching, always looking in the wrong places for what we desperately need. Shakespeare declares through the doomed Macbeth that life is but a walking at shadow, a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Some of us might know how the woman feels, that restless agony weighed down by emptiness and disappointment. And frustration. Perhaps some of us struggle even now with finding something that satisfies our thirst, that we are still pursuing a life in old wells dug by people long ago that have dried up. Water that's no longer even good to drink, but we keep drinking it because it's the only thing that's there. What the woman and all of us need is something eternal. Something that fully satisfies our our heart and our soul. Something that connects us to the kind of life that never fades or fails to refresh and renew us. The grace found in this story, however, is not that after a lifetime of searching, she found what she'd been looking for. She really only came to the well that day for water. One could argue she'd actually stop looking completely, settling for mere survival. The grace we see here instead is that true life came to her. True life came to her, inviting her to taste the waters of eternal life, to actually live for the very first time. Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well and waited for this woman to arrive. Now, it's important to notice no self-respecting rabbi 
would ever travel through Samaria. Most avoided the region entirely. They would go out of their way to not go through it. But John states that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why did he have to go through Samaria? He had to go through Samaria to meet this woman. Directed by his father to venture where no one else desired or even dared to go. He came to her just as he comes to many of us. In an ordinary way, we'd never expect so that we stumbled upon the miraculous. Reflecting our own ignorance of God's love, she was equally slow to understand the eternal implications of this conversation. The very end, she says, well, look, this is nice. Uh, this is a nice talk, but, you know, one day, you know, the Messiah will come. He'll sort it all out. Can I just get my water and go, please? She's, uh, I mean, she's kind of right to be worried about this solitary Jewish man asking her for water, and she keeps him at a distance, especially when he starts to talk and what to her probably sounded more like riddles. She misreads the invitation at first, thinking he knows a nearby spring that will spare her uh, traveling to the well in town. But Jesus continues, he stays the course, and he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Not just water that they can, uh, that she can go somewhere to drink, but instead a spring inside of her. That's different. Had she known her prophets and moments where they point to the Messiah, she might have noticed that Jesus was talking on a much deeper level. Springs themselves, of course, are somewhat magical, unexpectedly bubbling to the surface from some unseen, mysterious source. Unlike a well, which is a man-made hole that we dig to find what we need and has the potential to grow stagnant, a spring charts its own course. It endlessly refreshes and renews and cleanses wherever it appears Springs are also mentioned throughout Scripture specifically in relation to the arrival of the Messiah and God's kingdom. Echoing the moment Moses calls forth a spring in the desert to quench the thirst of his children as they traveled to the promised land, God promises in Isaiah 49 that he would one day lead his people to springs of eternal life that would satisfy their souls forever. When he's given a glimpse into heaven, Ezekiel is struck by a river flowing from the temple of God into the whole world, flooding the universe with God's goodness and his presence. Jesus describes eternity to John in Revelation 7 like this. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They will hunger no longer nor thirst anymore for the lamb And the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs, to to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. The invitation Jesus offers to the woman at the well promises much more than quenching physical thirst. Not only will he give her eternal water to satisfy her soul, he will place an eternal, uh, Water, an eternal spring within the woman, which will transform her from the inside out. 
Now, until now, the woman resembled a dry well. Her own choices had muddied the waters of her heart. But connected to the living water Jesus provides, she would be made new, finding what she had been searching for her entire life. Recognizing something in Jesus, but maybe not recognizing the power of the entire promise, she decides to accept. And she says, look, if you're offering this eternal water, give it to me so I won't be thirsty and I won't at least have to keep coming here to draw water out of this well in the middle of the day, avoiding everybody in town. And that's really all it took. She believed him, even if it didn't fully make sense. Faith demands the same of us. The ways of God and his kingdom may sometimes confuse us. The world might feel irreversibly broken and on its own way to destruction. Our own lives might, be, might seem to be ruled only by random chaos, but in faith we trust the one who offers us abundant life. Because when we do this, he bears with us leading us to water that will not just make us clean, not just quench our thirst, but will make us new. From that moment, you can almost see the spring of living water beginning its work in her as the conversation continues. Just as a doctor goes directly to the source of an ailment, Jesus gently addresses the woman's pattern of sin, which had kept her enslaved. Slowly, she does eventually realize that she's speaking with the promised Messiah that even the Samaritans waited upon for salvation. Eventually, Jesus confirms his identity, and they talk a little bit before the disciples arrive and the woman leaves. And we actually don't get a window into that end of the conversation, but I wish we knew how she responded in that short moment. But what's amazing is that we do know her life was transformed. And we know this by what she dropped. And her enthusiasm to share what happened with the town, with the people that had ostracized her, that had uh, not talked to her, the people that she'd been avoiding, she did something drastic. The woman dropped her bucket. This bucket which represented the toil of life apart from God, endlessly seeking to quench an insatiable thirst, falls at the feet of Jesus. He claimed her burden and in exchange offered, his, offered her his life, flooding her soul with forgiveness and love. She's not thirsty anymore, and so she leaves the bucket behind. But here's a funny thing about natural springs. They aren't really ever contained. They spill over. They're, they spread to anything within reach. Bursting with the love of God, she ran back into town, the community where moments before she'd operated in shadows and proclaimed the love of Jesus to the people that she'd been avoiding. The people who shunned her, who mocked her who possibly hurt, hurt her or had been hurt by her, now stood in amazement as she offered an invitation to faith. Jesus, the Messiah, knew the worst about this woman and loved her anyway, inviting her to step into eternal life, 
To begin her journey to the kingdom, not when she died, but right in that moment. He invited her to begin a comprehensive spiritual transformation that would not only change her entire life, but bring others to that same source, to that same spring of eternal life. To those same waters that would cleanse and make new. Notice that from uh, that many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. That happens a little bit later uh, in John. Something about her transformation led her own people not only to an awareness of their own thirsty souls, but to the ultimate source of living water. Remember, the Samaritans had walked slightly apart from God and from Israel for generations. But when they were presented with the chance to drink from the spring of eternal life, they willingly followed. The living water Christ offers is available to all, and we are called to share that invitation with everyone. All believers are called to connect people to Jesus so everyone might know the same love and hope for their own life too. Our Vision Frame uh, team wanted our new mission statement to reflect the joy and the grace found in the invitation of Jesus to the woman at the well. So we came up with this short phrase, uh, and I hope you memorize it. It's easy to remember. Our church has been placed here by God to connect people to Jesus, the spring of life. We are here to connect Jesus to the spring of life. We wanted this statement to reflect the spiritual reality of our community, our church. We wanted to to reflect our purpose. Everything this church has ever done flows from the desire to not just connect our own lives to Jesus, but help others do the same. Now, what's amazing about this is that when we looked at both our recent and not so recent history, we discovered the original Presbyterians that worked and lived and ministered in this area had a fairly similar idea. I'm going to take you back a couple hundred years. In the early 1800s, this region was still pretty much considered a wilderness, especially as the Native Americans still lived in areas that they'd called home for generations. Believers... Presbyterians, however, came to this region, to these mountains, for a purpose. To connect those living apart from God to Jesus, the one who brought salvation to all of humanity. Now, the Presbyterian church and school established just outside of Talking Rock are spiritual parents in these hills supported this specific mission with permission from the Cherokee themselves. They wanted to teach about Jesus, not necessarily from a position of superiority, but by living alongside those they wanted to reach. And we see that they, uh, uh, in our local history, we learn that the Presbyterians who are here uh, made great inroads into the Cherokee nation. And they lived alongside them. They became friends. And yet the Presbyterians in this region also gained a reputation for causing trouble. Did y'all know this? A new law uh, in the early 1800s required that all white men living on Cherokee land 
must register with the state and pledge an oath of loyalty to the government. Along with most other missionaries, Pastor Isaac Proctor uh, deliberately failed to comply. He fled, uh, fleeing, uh, feeling that the state had no power to enforce their laws on land that belonged to the Cherokee. Uh, These Presbyterian missionaries, this pastor, was arrested, released, but immediately returned to their mission, uh, which didn't please the local or state authorities. Ultimately, the pressure became too intense, and the pastors were either banished or left on the advice of their families. The first Presbyterians in this area, in Pickens County, were banished for trying to connect people to Jesus, the spring of life. The church itself remained for a little while, but shut down after the roof collapsed and was never rebuilt. Uh, Again, the local history has, there's a bit of debate about why the roof collapsed. It was either a fire or there was a a snowstorm and it collapsed, but it was never rebuilt. And Presbyterians didn't really have a presence in this area until this church was founded almost 40 years ago. Another pastor, Daniel Buttrick, however, returned in 1838, and accompanied the Cherokee West on the Trail of Tears. That is the kind of connection that the earliest Presbyterians had with the people they were trying to reach. Today, we pursue people in this region in much the same way. That mission remains alive in us to connect people to Jesus, the spring of life. We no longer push through forests or ford rivers to reach the lost, but we still enter the wilderness of our broken culture to connect an increasingly disconnected people to the love of God we know in Jesus. Our Savior sets an example for us to follow when he meets the woman at the well, having found hope and redemption in Jesus. Having drunk at the springs of eternal life, we are now called to mirror the actions of our Savior, meeting the lost and pointing them toward salvation. In a county of mountains that supposedly has no water on its own, and a culture that consistently tries to quench their soul's deepest thirst with things that only make them thirstier, we know the value of drinking the waters of eternal life. We know the value of drinking at the spring that Jesus offers to each of us. And so may our entire lives, may this church, everything we do, May all of it revolve around the one reality of connecting people to Jesus, the spring of life. Hallelujah. Amen.